Welcome to the Story Studio. Oh yeah, here we go. Check it out now. Welcome to the Story Studio, a podcast for an independent publishing company. Explore the world of self-publishing, independent art, and the future of storytelling. My name is Luke Condor with K, and I'm joined by Mr. Daniel Wilcox. How's it going, Dan? You alright? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. It's uh, Sunday. I'm feeling ready to go back to the day job tomorrow. Uh, I thought you were going to say it's sunny and I'm sat here going, well, we're recording at 10 to 9 at night in the UK, so it's pretty dark outside. Yeah. Dark and dingy. Yeah, how's but it you're going, ready mate? for the grind. I think so. But yeah, by about this time, I'm ready to, because what I like, to, so it's late Sunday, so it's like 9 o'clock, so around this time, we'll finish up here and then I'll start setting my little to-do list for the week. And just doing that kind of gets me excited about like getting stuff done. <laughs> Sounds yeah. super lame. But uh, that's how my mind works, I guess. Well, to be fair, if you enjoy your job, then there's nothing wrong with that. Oh, well, I meant like personal goals and stuff. Oh, personal ones. Fair enough. I thought you meant like work stuff. No, I don't have any goals for that. No. (laughs) Survive. Turn up, do, go home. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. How's the writing going? Yeah, it's going all right. I, uh, well, we haven't, it's been a few days since we recorded the episodes with Zach. So yeah. I've actually not got a lot more to report on the writing, full transparency, guys. But um, yeah, it's going well. Just cracking on with my series, Chaos Reigns, which is going pretty well. Yeah. Um, back in the swing of writing, getting the word counts down. I've been at my parents for the weekend, which has been a bit of a nice break. But at the same time, sometimes I feel like you just need that day or two to recharge and then jump straight back into it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. Yeah, how about yours? Well, like, yeah, the same. I mean, it was literally like two or three days ago we recorded the last day. <laughs> I've just done more of the same. Uh, but it, it, that's what writing is, I'm afraid. Was, um, I did a I did a 10K run yesterday and I was running and I was about halfway over, halfway through, and I was really not feeling it. I'd just taken Alaska out for like a, a three-mile walk before I did the 10K run, so I was already kind of out of it. And I was like, there's just so much to do. And then I was just like, he's going to have to, there's really is nothing else you can do. You can't teleport home. You're going to have to <laughs> one, foot, one, foot after, one foot after the other and keep going. That's the same with writing. You just have to yeah. keep putting words down. Yeah, just yeah. keep moving forward. That's the thing. I hate I hate having days where I've done zero. I've got a nice big goose egg on your, on your sheet. But at the same time, sometimes it is worth it to build up because I had that five and a half thousand word day last week, which was awesome. Yeah. And then since then, even since then, in my word counts have sort of increased in the half hour sprints I've been doing. Um, but I have felt myself, especially yesterday, just incredibly tired. So put that aside, have a rest day, get your body back up and running. So what, what, what would you do on a rest day? Like what, what would, like, you know, like a hot bath, cup of tea. What, what kind of things would you put on your ideal rest day? Uh, so, I mean, it was slightly different because I was around my parents and we had some sort of family and stuff over, but I deliberately avoided reading anything because, um, a lot of my days are very intensive on the eyes with reading and screens and different things for work and whatnot. Um, so I just put all that aside, just kind of sat down, just no expectations of what I wanted to do that day. Um, I just spoke to people even, even phone wise. And I know we've spoken a lot about social media and a lot of my family were sat there on their phones and I was just like, no, I'm just going to put my phone to the side. Just yeah. going to be in the room, just going to empty my mind, not worry about anything and just have a day where it's just literally no expectation. I think sometimes that's what you need. Yeah. I tell you, I I love those moments where you put your phone away and you don't feel the need to like check Twitter or anything. You just put it away, put it down and then get a beer. 
Like there's something mm-hmm. about that that beer, like alcoholic beverage, because that's because I can't do anything after I've had a beer or any sort of like. No, I don't mean I don't mean I'm like legless, but I mean like I can't I can't go back to doing productive stuff. So having a beer for me, even having a first sip, it's like relax. Symbol. Yeah, symbolic. It's like because it's like a ritualistic relaxation. Um, little bit. I, I just can't do anything after that. So that's it. I just I feel my shoulders just like relaxing. I'm like ah, this is. This is resting. Yeah. No, oh, absolutely. Sometimes, sometimes you just need it. Yeah, for sure. And a back massage whenever. Oh, and a bubble bath. And a bubble bath. I actually uh, really like it. Sometimes just a hug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Alaska's really good for hugging. She's one of the snuggliest dogs I've ever had. Yeah. Bailey is when he's ill, but when he's well, he, he runs a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, but... big whoop. Yeah, so my big group this week is the, uh, I want to say new Scrivener update, but when this episode will be released, it'll probably be out for about two months by then. But um, I feel like structurally, in terms of what you do with it, there's not a whole lot of differences, um, but it's nicer to look at, it's easier to navigate, they've added some really nice touches to it. And um, to be honest, I've been playing around with a couple of different cloud-based um, story maker type writer programs. Um, which are all absolutely fantastic. And I know I've spoken about a few before, and they're really, really great at what they do. But I have found that writing on a cloud-based writing piece of software means that you're a lot more tempted a lot of the time to use the internet. And sometimes if you want to go to somewhere where the internet isn't there and you want to just be able to write and all your stuff is in the cloud, that's not always ideal. So I am finding that I just want to, at the minute, go back to Scrivener hit the basics. We wrote, you know, Lazarus and the first two books of the rot in Scrivener um, and just go back to basics and just get the words down. Um, and yeah, it, it's, have you seen much of the new Scrivener update? Mm, a picture. I think all I saw was the same sort of layout, but a nicer image. Yeah. They've kind of jigged a few things around. So I've got my little binder on the left. I've got my, um, document on the right, but also in sort of a sliver next between the binder and the document you now can put your cards in smaller ones so you can see your chapters and sentence breaks down as you go through and do little intros and stuff. But it's mostly just, it's just a lot cleaner and a lot of the stuff that was hard to find is a lot more prevalent um, yeah. because I think, I think Scrivener was long overdue in update to be fair. And, and I feel like they delivered, they've done well and you can upgrade for an extra 25, 30 quid, which I've done just to one off payment and I'm just slamming words now. So you're good. Yeah. How about yourself? Big work. Uh, okay, so I am rereading one of my favourite creative books. Um, it's called Rebel Without Crew by Robert Rodriguez. I've read nice. it. Um, I think this may be my fifth time I've read it. And the first time I read it, it was I. I finished the book, and then two weeks later, I had made Keith, which is a short film because I, I was so inspired by this book. So I read Rebel Without Crew. Um, if you don't know, Robert Rodriguez is there. Big time director nowadays. So he um, he did the Sin City movies. He did um, the Spy Kids movies. Um, he had the Faculty. He's done, he's done a lot of like big stuff. But he started out. So he's he's from uh, Mexico. They didn't have any sort of film like schools like they do here or anything like that. So he he had um, a film camera and he wanted to make a feature film, and he just went to one of those flu camps. They did like experiments on him. <laughs> To, for a bit of money and they use that money to sort of make the film and this this book is just his mainly the big chunk of it is just a journal entries from 
from that time in his life. And he just kind of is really inspiring to see some guy just say, I'm going to make a feature film. And this is how, how it all went down. Mm. And then it was from that feature film we made for seven grand uh, that everything sort of, you know, kicked off for him. And I just found it, found it really inspiring. It's just a really good, um, really good book. If you sort of want to get some creative work done and you're feeling a little bit, I don't know, a bit um, stuck, I guess. I think it's one of those sort of grassroots gateway stories, isn't it? Where you can actually see someone just go from zero to just throwing their creativity at something and, and having one of those moments where it works and it kicks off for someone. And essentially, especially when we're where we are with our creativity and you're about to launch into your, your feature version of Keith, it's always good to have those stories behind you to go, you know, other people can do it and it can be so easy just to... it Just producing the final product is obviously difficult but that process is easy in itself it's the the fame and everything else after that's the hard part but breaking it down as you see someone else do it i think is helpful yeah but i think uh if you read through it you, you kind of just realize that a lot of it is just doing the work like it's, it's very easy and nice to have like plans and stuff you want to do but until you start actually just getting your head down and doing the work none of it's actually going to happen so reading this like you see the day by day you see on Thursday, whenever, 1991, they, they went out and they found the location for, for whatever they were shooting that day or whatever. But um, it's just, I totally recommend it. Like I said, I've read it four times. I think I'll I'll keep, I've got two copies of it now. So I might just give one to, to someone else at some point. Maybe we could do a giveaway on this on this show. I don't know. But um, hmm. definitely recommend this book, 100%. There you go. So today we have a lovely interview coming up for people. Um, it's uh, self publishing Wiz, who you know you were on his show a little while ago. Yes, self publishing um, journeys. Yeah. So today we're going to talk a bit about podcasting, a bit about uh, Paul's self publishing journey, but also we're going to dive a little bit into cryptocurrency, which is you know like a buzzword right now. Mm. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And Paul's a very, very interesting guy with a lot of history and background behind him. So we kind of jump around in a lot of places, but um, we get some good stuff from Paul. So it's worth sticking around to the end. So before that, and I will I will cut this out if you don't feel like we should talk about this, but should we talk about the coming name change and why we have to change the name? I think we probably, uh, I don't know how to best approach it because... <laughs> Because it's gonna—I don't know if it will reflect negatively on them to be like, "Oh, um, we have to change the name because someone bigger has stolen the name." Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Um, yeah, I didn't really see that at first, but I can see how it would maybe come across negative against them. But yeah, yeah. I don't know if they even know about this show. But I'm sure they do because we spoke about it on their show. <laughs> <laughs> And they spoke about the amount of things that we stole from them. Yeah. <laughs> and now they're stealing from us. I, th I think it's uh, I think it's intentional. <laughs> I think it's deliberate. I think they're gunning for us. Yeah. No, oh, no. They're like those those dickheads in the UK, Hawk and Cleaver, stealing Lying our bastards. shit. Yeah, in the UK. <laughs> doing, doing better on podcasting than we are. Yeah. Um, Maybe. Yeah, it, when I listen to their reasoning for it, I do understand why. And I think it makes total sense. And if I was in their shoes, I think I'd do the same. Yeah. I mean, if we did explain it, we can kind of go down the route. We were going to do a bit of a rebrand anyway. Yeah. Um, 
but okay. I don't know what alternatives are going to be yet. But so just just to make a cut point, so I'm going to cut from just before I said that to, to this now. So we do have some news coming up about the show. There's going to be some more little changes here and there. Nothing to worry about. The show's still going to be coming out probably more regularly than it has been doing. And you know it's all going to be the same, but we there are going to be some changes pretty soon. So um, exciting, good changes, I think. Right, Dan? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think um, we launched this show about a year and a half ago. Yeah. Um, kind of just throwing it out there, seeing what the take would be, talking to some people. Um, but yeah, I think we're going to put our heads together, look at what the next step is going to be, um, have a bit of a refresh in terms of look, and try and see what what really fits the show and how we go forward. Yeah, sounds good. All right, guys, so enjoy the interview. I'm sure we'll get a lot out of it. Get your notepads and pens out. Get your thinking caps on. Get your monster and rockstar and energy drink cocktails <laughs> mainlined. And yeah, we'll see you on this side. Bye. Paul Teague is a tech super whiz and author extraordinaire, writing thriller and sci-fi fiction in the way of his The Grid and Secret Bunker series, as well as as well as a healthy bucket full of non-fiction text for authors and entrepreneurs. Paul has been riding the wave of digital entrepreneurship since the days when Dan was still nose deep in Pokemon Blue, which was yonks ago. Paul is also the host of the ever-popular self-publishing journeys podcast, where he breaks down and beats out the habits of the industry's top performers, has recently been stepping his toe into the book bub game, and I just started a brand new cryptocurrency podcast with writer pal Alison Ingleby. Welcome to the show, non-fiction author P. Teague, sci-fi author Paul Teague, and thriller author Paul J. Teague. How's it going, Paul? It's very good, thank you. I think you just politely told me I'm older than you two, didn't you? <laughs> in, in a roundabout-ish sort of way. <laughs> yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah. Awesome. So, um, so let's start off. What, what does the J in Paul J. Teague stand for? Uh, it's completely random. Because um, I am christened Paul Teague, I don't have a middle name, and that didn't bother me until I became a writer. And so when I was um, when I decided to write thrillers, I thought, well, I've used up all my names now, P Teague and Paul Teague, and so I just needed to come up with a random initial so that I could have a separate author profile on Amazon. Um, so J is Joe, my middle son. It's just random, and it just I tried all the initials in the family, and P Paul J T just felt right, felt like it had the credibility of a thriller writer. So I went for that. Nice. I wondered if it was after that Simpsons episode where Homer's middle name Jay turned out to just be for Jay. Have you, have you seen that one where he spent the entire episode Jay trying to work Simpson. out what it is? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a classic episode. Jay's like a really common sort of middle initial to use, I think, isn't it? It has a very uh, choppy ring to it. I like it. Luke J. Condor, Daniel J. Wilcox. That, that yeah. is, is your middle name Jay? It's not Jay, no. Yeah, it should be. It works very well. One day. So, yeah. So, Paul, I mean... Um, do you want to tell us a little, how long have you been doing the whole indie publishing thing for? Because I know you, you say you've been doing the digital entrepreneurship thing for a while, but um, when do you get into this writing game? Uh, well, the, originally when I was nine. So I used right. to write stories <laughs> when I was a kid. And uh, my first classic, I'm not really sure that my writing's improved since then, but it was, <laughs> it was the classic Mr. Plum and Mr. Apple that I wrote uh, at the age of nine. And uh, you guys probably aren't old enough to remember Basil and Bond pads, are you? But it's what we used to write on in the days before computers when we were kids. So, um, you know, used to go to the village shop and get a little pad that had lines on it. This is when people used to write letters. And um, I, I used to write my stories on that. And um, so that was Mr. Plum and Mr. Apple. That was, that was inspired by uh, Professor Brainstorm 
uh, by a guy called Norman Hunter, who again you probably don't know because you're way too young. Uh, <laughs> it's like I feel like this interview is just going to be completely cut through no, by no. generation gap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'll, I'll get off this. So I, I wrote that, and then, and, <laughs> and then moving on swiftly, I um, I wrote uh, short stories as a teenager, and then went to school, and and I think the last thing I wrote was at university when I was training to be a teacher. And I think it was an ill-fated sort of children's book, which a friend illustrated. And it was part of my dissertation. That was it. And then um, I became old, as we've already uh, determined in the podcast. And uh, a couple of years ago, um, I I thought I was going to get a contract because I was, I've been freelance for about seven years and didn't get it. And I thought, ooh, that's a bit inconvenient. I've got nothing to do at the moment. And uh, there was a book, a writing competition um, that I happened to notice for uh, sort of you know, children, young, ad- young adults. And I'd mentioned it to my sister who said she wanted to write a book. I'd mentioned it to my oldest son who said he wanted to write a book. And I mentioned it to my wife who'd always said that she wanted to write a book. None of them wrote the book, but I did. So I, I, I wrote the first 5,000 words for this competition, which came really easily to me as it turns out, and then read the rules and realized that they were expecting me if I got shortlisted to have the whole thing written. And I thought I wasn't expecting that. So I had to sit down and finish writing the book. And actually, by that stage, I just got the hang of it, to be honest with you. And then that turned into the Secret Bunker trilogy. It started off as 5,000 words and then turned into a, a three-book trilogy, as it turns out. Uh, what year was that? That was 2000. I started writing it 2014. Is that right? I think. Yeah, I think it's 2014. I get the years. They tend to blur when you get to my age, you know. You'll find yeah. that out when you <laughs> So, so you you did the first five thousand words, and then uh, for this competition, what happened to competition? Did you did you carry on with that and, and get the book submitted to that, or how did that work? Yeah, so the first five thousand words went, and then I got the dear John letter, but um, right. I, I didn't I didn't care by that stage because I I'd written it and was getting ready to self publish it. Now, the great thing about that book was the secret bunker is based on a real life secret bunker. So uh, there is this place in Scotland called um, it's Scotland Secret Bunker. It's huge. It's the size of a football pitch, but it's over two levels, and it's underneath a cottage in the middle of nowhere. Um, in oh my geography is terrible. Somewhere beginning with F in Scotland, where they play golf. Where's that? Uh, Fed in no. Glasgow. <laughs> 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 We're all good at geography. I, it'll, come to me, it'll come to me in about 20 minutes' time. Uh, somewhere in Scotland. And um, we went there with the kids when the kids were younger. So it had been four years since we went there. It was, it was one of those rainy day activities that you do when you've got you know kids and they're, they're crawling up the walls. And um, the, the story came from that. Now, the great thing about it is I, I sent them the story and they stock it in the shop now. So they order like 90 a time and pop it in the shop. Wow, so wow, I, cool. yeah. that was, it sounds like it's brilliant planning, doesn't it? But it, it was a complete <laughs> fluke and luck and coincidence. Because when I'd written it, I thought I'd better tell them that I've mentioned them in this book, just in case there's any, you know, repercussions or they object to it. So I very tentatively contacted them on Facebook and said, oh, by the way, I've written a book. Do you want to have a look? And um and they've been really good. They just completely embraced it. And they order the books, you know, not well, 90 at a time originally. And then they just keep ordering them 30 at a time, which is, it's been fantastic, to be honest with you. I, I, it's, if it had been a plan, it would have been inspired. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. We so need that's to start to write uh, yeah. about famous places. Eiffel Tower. The, there yeah. is actually a bunker in Manchester as well, secret bunker. So I might have to get into that niche of bunker, yep. bunker books. But uh, so, what so, was it you going, sorry, Luke, um, so what was it that kept you going from that into sort of your non-fiction works? Well, what was the next step from from the bunker series? 
So I wrote, I wrote the bunker and then immediately found out that as a fiction writer, you are completely unknown at the bottom of a very deep genre. So when you write fiction, um, you know, people know my genre, dystopian and sci-fi, but they don't know me because I'm unknown. I'm right at the bottom of it. I have no traction there at all. And because I've been doing geeky internet-y stuff for years, I, I, the, the penny dropped and I thought, well, look, this is something that I do know is is non-fiction. Um, I, what, what I do as my kind of day job, if you want to call it that, is I, I train corporates and I, I do LinkedIn and Facebook and all these stuff and websites and email marketing, all those sorts of things. And I thought, well, I know about this stuff and I get good feedback from my training. So let's bang out at great speed six non-fiction books, which is what I did. Uh, email marketing webinars, uh, WordPress, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Uh, and and I, I got those out at great speed and was able then to get those, uh, not at number one in the paid charts, but number one in the free charts, I was and, and start sort of selling more books because it's just keywords. Um, Nonfiction is completely different because if you're looking for Facebook, you just keyword your book Facebook and your book comes up. And... Um, so it's very different with nonfiction. So I, I went for that. I I did a remix of all those books and turned it into um, a huge book, which was like a for dummies book, how to build your author platform, which was kind of like a, a mix of those, all the extracts taken from those books. And then some extra bits written about for, specifically for authors. Um, and then, so I had seven nonfiction books out and I was just able to shift those uh, fast. In, in actual fact, until very recently, the Facebook book was my bestseller. And I, I, every week on my podcast, I do a podcast diary. And I, I never mentioned the Facebook book because it just kind of sits there and sells. And um, I don't get excited about it because I don't really want to get into nonfiction. But strangely enough, it was my bestseller for, you know, for a long time. But I didn't get excited about it. It was the fiction I wanted to sell. And, and those were the figures that, either deeply wounded me or please me <laughs> yeah so um so you've been at this for like four years now does that sound about right the indie publishing thing what um what big changes have you seen in those past four years no, not a massive amount in, in the process so vellum is the best thing that's happened to me it's interestingly this afternoon i've been uh, taking my grid book, um, which is my second sci-fi series. So I did I did the Secret Bunker first, the trilogy. Then I think I did the non-fictions. Then I did the grid. Uh, so I came back to to fiction. And when I did the, the Secret Bunker and the grid, I wrote when I wrote the Secret Bunker in Google Drive actually, and then realised I'd have to take it out into Word to get somebody to proofread it, and then had the the hell of formatting it for paperbacks then. Um, which I did myself in Word. And then when I submitted them to um, Amazon, I, I because I can code, what I used to do is I used to upload the, the Word document to Amazon, download the HTML, and then I would tidy it up in the HTML because I was geeky enough to be able to do that. Um, and the big changes, so I've been, I've been updating the grid. It's all in Vellum now. So all I did was bring my old Word file in. You can tell when you put it into Vellum. You know, even Vellum can't cope with the horrible formatting in Word. But it's been very easy to put it right in Vellum. And I'm, I'm just, I just want all of my books, including the ones that I wrote early, I want them back into Scrivener and back into Vellum so that I can process and, and um, uh, you know, make changes to them very much more dynamically than, than I could have done. So everything since... I finished writing the grid has been in Scrivener. I think I started using Scrivener probably halfway through the grid, actually. I discovered that. 
Um, so my learning took a little while to catch up with my practice, in actual fact. Yeah. So, I mean, vellum is one of those things where I don't think, I, I don't think we've really spoken too much about it before. Our listeners might not know. Um, it's definitely something me and Dan have been talking about for mm. quite, quite a while. Um, can you just quickly just tell us what vellum actually is and, and what it's so great at doing? Uh, it's a thing of great beauty. Uh, it, it costs. It puts people off because, um, well, number one, it's only available on Macs. But on my blog, because I'm a geek, I thought I'm not set up for this. I hate Macs, um, and I found a way of doing it on a PC. And if you go to my blog at paulteague.com, there's a, a video and a how-to guide there on how to use Vellum on a PC. It's very easy. I've been doing it this afternoon. Uh, no hacks, you know, no trickery, no cheats involved at all. And um, so. I was put on, I kept hearing people saying how great Vellum was, and then, oh, by the way, you could only use it on a Mac. And um, I've already discovered that I hate Macs, so I'm not going back to Macs. And and it just was just egged me on to find a solution. And I had one of those petty drop moments, worked out how to do it. And when you use Vellum, you don't have, you could actually process a book. You don't pay until you generate the outputs. And the outputs, when I started using it, were just the, the e-book. So it, it will generate Amazon, uh, Google Play, uh, I was going to call what is it? Um, the one that begins with Z. Um, <laughs> Kobo, no Kobo. Oh, Kobo. Yeah. Kobo. I was going to say Zoho. That's something. Zobo. Kobo. Uh, and and all the others. Uh, Barnes and Noble. It, um, uh, it, it outputted those files. So I just did it once, and I fell in love with it, even just for the the digital files, because as I said, I was I was correcting them in in HTML. Recently, they added paperback out uh, outputs. Now, that is just glorious. If you've ever had to, um, so I've done them myself in Word, which is, yeah, same. It's, like, it's like a preview of what hell's going to be like. But <laughs> it's horrible um, and it takes forever. So when I started to make, you know, a trickle of money from books, I then paid somebody else to do them. I was very happy with that. They did a great job of it. It was whatever it was, $90, $75. And I was really happy with paying somebody to do it and then vellum did the upgrade and now i just do it all myself it's absolutely incredible guys you 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 so i i write in scrivener i have to output to word for my uh proofreader to, to go through and you know add the notes to the changes and things when i get that back i bring it into scrivener and make the changes output it as a doc file bring it into vellum and vellum makes it look beautiful instantly mm. it's just incredible i think and what i would urge you to do if you're thinking about it is you can actually process the file in vellum before you have to pay anything. So you only pay when you sort of generate the electronic files from it. And you'll have seen enough by that stage to know that you want to buy it. I think once you've tried it, and you know, even having a play with it, you'll know that you need to buy this thing. Yeah, it's mm, one of those things where it. it's like crack. Like they give you like a little bit of a free <laughs> go and then yeah. you know, I, I need this now. <laughs> yeah, it's hellish in that the amount of times I've had a perfectly formatted book or what I thought was, and then the minute you copy it in and look at the preview, there'll just be pages off and it'll just, all the spacing will be out and the, the types will be different. And yeah, I've, I've it played takes a little bit. It, it takes care of it all, Dan. It's, it's absolutely amazing. I'm looking at the grid now. And when I did the grid in, in Word, I had to make decisions about, you know, pages where, the, where it didn't quite work and do I leave a slight gap there and things. But it's, this is going to take care of all of that for me. I'll, I'll just press generate and it will generate me a perfect paperback file. Absolutely wonderful. There you go. So um, moving a little bit away from the actual fiction writing and looking at some of your podcasting stuff, because you do um, the self-publishing journeys podcast. And like we mentioned in the intro, you've started getting onto a cryptocurrency podcast. Do you want to tell us a little bit about why you podcast and a little bit about what the new podcast brings? 
so my my day job i i taught for however many years it was and then i all i wanted to do was get into radio in actual fact and i had a, a broadcasting career with the bbc for 18 years and uh, i was a radio presenter so i used to do actually i started down on radio lincolnshire which is where where you live uh, it's my first ever gig and um, so I, I did Radio Lincolnshire, and then I, I spent most of my broadcasting days on Radio Humberside. Uh, I used to do the breakfast show there, drive time, phone in, did everything but sport, uh, every show but sport, even religion and, uh, and gardening, would you believe? And then uh, uh, to Cumbria, uh, and then uh, left the BBC. And I can't remember, podcasts have been on my radar for a long time. I did a very early podcast when I was doing online marketing, which was the first thing I did when I left the Beeb. And I've done loads of coaching videos and things like that. So it just has always felt like a, an evolution to me of what I used to do on the radio. And then I'd wanted to, to do a podcast. And I, I can't remember what made me go for self-publishing. I think I, th I was listening to a lot of self-publishing podcasts. And I thought there are no podcasts out there for people like me, i.e. unknown people who don't really have that much to talk about a modicum of success but how how it seems to me that i'm hearing from people who are earning zillions and zillions of of, of dollars but i'm not hearing how people get the traction to, to start earning those first dollars because most of us when we start we'll be happy if we're earning a hundred dollars two hundred dollars a month when we start and that that's the, the problem so i specifically set up that podcast to talk to people who are in that position so my criteria for the show is uh, you've got to have at least one book published, self-published, and you've got to have a web presence. I've got to be able to find you online. So you, you mustn't be a lost cause when we, when we look for you online. But that's that's pretty well it. You, you need to have published a book and making some sales and to be able to talk to us about how you got there and what you did with that. So, so to me, it's like being back on the radio again. Um, I started with the interviews. And then I, I can't remember what made me start the podcast diary. I think maybe I did a couple of diaries where I was just explaining what I was doing when I was writing a book. And I only did them for a, a couple of weeks and then I stopped them. And I got really good feedback for them. And people said, oh, I hope you do the diaries again. We really enjoy the diaries. And I got the sensation that people preferred the diaries in many respects to the interviews. Um, so I, I started doing now a weekly diary, which is just me talking nonsense into the microphone for 30 minutes, just saying what I've been doing as a writer all week and telling, you know, saying what I'm earning and how, how I'm doing promos and things like that. And people seem to, that's always the bit that people tell me they like most when they talk about the podcast. Um, so to me, it's just like, uh, it's just like radio. Uh, and and, and ironic, ironically, my view is, is that when you can listen to Spotify and podcasts in your car, when we've got decent Wi-Fi and mm. trains and planes and cars, no one's going to listen to local radio anymore. They're all going to be listening to, to, to podcasts and on-demand audio. Um, you know, so in many respects, I'm doing what the industry I started in will become, I think. Uh, it's not quite there yet because the infrastructure is not there. But, um, you know, why, why would you listen to a linear radio station when, like Netflix, you can say, well, I fancy a bit of country or western mixed with a bit of rock and roll or something. You know, you can just have exactly what you want when you want it. So yeah. I think audio will go that way eventually. Um, so I really want to be in that game. The, the, the crypto thing is just an interest of mine. Now, I met a guy, I mean, this, this makes me cry. Um, when I was in my internet marketing days, when I was just getting ready, this is just before I started writing, actually, I had a meeting in Manchester with a couple of internet marketing pals. And one of them was into to Bitcoin at the time. And he was, he was going down that route. And we had lunch in Manchester. And I remember thinking there, I'm really interested in this, really interested. Um, but this is going to be regulated. It's going to be, it's, you know, it's financial. And so therefore, 
rules and regulations apply with financial things. You've got to have all sorts of disclaimers and things. And I remember thinking, but I'm really interested in this. I came home and I tried to work out how to buy Bitcoin in 2014, I think it was. And I couldn't do it. I looked at that thinking, whoa, that's way too complicated. And then forgot it. And I wish I hadn't, of course, now. <laughs> yeah. uh, I wouldn't be talking to you, or I'd be talking to you from my yacht in the Bahamas now yeah. if, I, if I'd persevered. But um, it's been something, it's been on my radar for ages, and then it, I just couldn't um, help myself eventually. And thought I must, um, I, I'd started listening to podcasts and thought these are too techy, they're too geeky. For somebody who says, how do I buy Bitcoin? They're not really answering that question. And I just, I, and the other thing is, is that uh, cryptocurrencies are 80 to 90% male, and I, and to me again, the, um, I wanted to to do something that was engaging for you know for both genders, um, so that um, it wasn't just guys you know sniggering about what they've invested and, and they want to buy a Lamborghini or something. You know, I wanted it to be very accessible. Um, so that's why we set up the other podcast. So you've got a proper podcast network here now. Uh, cryptocurrency is weird because we, I think, both me and Dan had about half a Bitcoin last year that we sold <laughs> for. Uh, you know, just just a bit of money, English pounds, and then since then, Bitcoin is now what did he get to like eleven grand? Oh, that's, uh, done, that's done really well. Mm. Yeah, uh, we used to use it the way we got the Bitcoin. We used to use um, a website called Steemit, which is where we used to when we first started this podcast. Is we were making a bit of income that way, just uh, writing blog content and stories just for this web website called Steemit, and uh, I couldn't even tell you how it exactly worked, but it, we managed nope. to get some money out of it, <laughs> and. Um, is there any sort of anything out there like Steemit or, or Bitcoin or any sort of cryptocurrency related technology that creators should be investing their time sort of looking into now and um, to make sure that they don't sort of miss out completely, if that makes any sense? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, I, I think the, it's not a people hear Bitcoin, but yeah. what they should be hearing is blockchain. Blo- right. Blockchain is the technology that's going to, I'm convinced, is going to alter our lives. So um, because I'm so old, as you've so kindly pointed out in the introduction, <laughs> I can remember uh, the internet uh, coming in. So I, I was on the BBC when the internet was coming in. I can remember in, I have to get my years right. I have to be careful I get my years right. So 1992, I didn't know anything about the internet. I'm, that, that's right. Isn't it? Yeah, didn't, so I was working at the BBC in Hull, didn't know anything about the internet. And there was a presenter there who was kind of really early adopter with it. And he used to do this internet feature on a Friday. And I remember listening to it and thinking, geez, this is boring as hell. Uh, this, uh, you know, what, what, I, he keeps telling me it's going to change my life. And, I, and you make it sound so boring. Um, I, I can't imagine how I'm going to use it. And then when you get the internet and you get a browser and somebody says to you, you know, put a keyword in that you're interested in. If you like train spotting, put train spotting in and see what happens. And you, and then you get it, don't you? You think, oh my goodness, I love this. It just goes on forever. And and I got the internet then, but he'd made it sound really boring. And I've never had such a strong sense of deja vu uh, as I, I'm getting with crypto coins now, which is that, you know, there's a, there's a load of geeks who are saying, this is the future. It's going to change. And there's a lot of people saying, oh, you know, stop going on about it. I don't get it. 
it's not here yet. And we're in those early days of the internet all over again. And I, I was blind to the internet when it came. And now I make my living on it and, and it, it enables everything I do. And this is how I feel about the blockchain. So don't think about Bitcoin. Hmm. Bitcoin is just part of it. It's the best known part of it. It's about the blockchain. The blockchain can affect all sorts of things. And I say to my, my kids who are, you know, I guess, uh, are they millennials? Are they still millennials, my kids? Or are they I get confused generation? with uh, what generation I am now. Because I was born in the 80s. And I thought I was generate. What's Gen Y? Is that Gen Y? I don't know. Millennials. I'm not sure. <laughs> I, Are millennials yeah. and Generation Z now sort of interchangeable? I don't, I Generation Z, I've heard of. Yeah. yeah. And I so I, it's you know um, so voting, for instance, will probably be done on the blockchain at some point. And and I you know I always say to my kids you know because it makes me cross that millennials don't vote enough. And uh, if every millennial voted, they could throw out all the grey-haired people of my age and rule the world, you know, rule the country again. But they don't. And it's really frustrating for my sort of generation because we were very politically uh, active. And I, I, I just think if all the men, millennials, they could, like, gang up on the grey-haired guys um, on social media and, and claim back the world. But instead, they're paying for um, student loans uh, forever and they can't get on the housing ladder forever. And, and, and it really frustrates me because we were, we, you know, I guess my generation was really politically active. We all marched against, you know, for CND and against student, uh, well, the original student, it wasn't student loans. I can't remember what it was. Keith Joseph was doing something or other, uh, cutting grants or whatever it was we were marching for. But people don't seem to sort of get um, angry about stuff like that these days. They just seem to accept it. So um, I'm hoping the blockchain, you know, might inspire this younger generation to get politically activated because it's done in a way that they can understand and engage in hmm. so uh, dan by the way have you got any uh, cryptocurrencies at the minute or have you no sold I, I i sold all mine with a with a greedy look on my face just to to make some free money yeah. um, <laughs> but i am starting to think that we probably should have held it back but at the same time i did spend it on at least debt so that's cool yeah yeah i bought some <laughs> electronium recently during the ico the initial coin offering but uh, nice. so, so, Paul, so it's still kind of confusing to, <laughs> I mean, if for someone who was going to get into it a little bit and sort of, you know, at least start getting head around what blockchain is, is, is your podcast a good way to, to start with all that? It's a complete uh, beginner. So right. um, Alison Ingleby is a writer who I met through the podcast. So she was somebody that I interviewed on the podcast. And um, as, as you'll know, uh, you have guests who come on, it's like pulling teeth sometimes, and you have guests that you get on really well with, you just have a natural rapport with. And um, Alice and I got on really well with uh, when we chatted, um, and I was really keen to have a female co-presenter. I wanted this one um, in my self-publishing podcast, it's me interviewing people. And I wanted it to be a different format. I didn't want it to be just me interviewing people. Um, I wanted to have a little bit of, um, you know, toing and froing and have a laugh uh, with it, with a co-presenter. Um, so I, I approached um, Alison out the blue, really. She knew nothing about cryptos uh, at the time, uh, which has been really, I, I'm about five months ahead of her, uh, which is actually a long time in crypto knowledge terms. And so we we, we set the thing up for complete beginners and, and, uh, and we don't profess to be experts. It's like the blind leading the blind, but we started off with, um, I think it's 12 bootcamp episodes where we went through all the things you need to know. I've done a series of seven videos which show you how to go on, well, very, very simply for a complete beginner, this is the best way to do it, how to go onto Coinbase and buy Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. 
and then to transfer those into an offline wallet where they're secure. So that's we've done that training for free on Patreon. And then I've also showed you how to set up security on your PC so you can keep all your pass keys and all these things that you need with cryptos nice and safe. So we just what we wanted somebody to be able to join us with to be absolutely clueless, but to be able to buy, I think most people would say I want to buy some Bitcoin. So we wanted to show people how to do that and how to do it securely so it's not gonna be nicked and you know pinched off them. And um, so um, we've also the other, the fun the great fun thing in it is we've got um, fantasy crypto portfolios. This is one of the things we're doing. So we've shown you in, in the podcast how you can, me and Alison have put a thousand imaginary dollars into a crypto portfolio and we bought 10 coins and we monitor those every week and see it's like football, fantasy football. We see what's, <laughs> gone, up, what's gone down and it's great fun because it allows, I've done a video on this too. So, you know, if you want to have a little punt with it without spending your money, you could you could just follow your portfolio every week and see whether you'd be making a fortune or losing a fortune without investing real money. So we just want to make it really accessible for people. And and my starting point is is that you know number one, I didn't want it to be blokey in the way that I perceived that many um, crypto podcasts were. I wanted it to to feel that you know men and women can can access it easily. Um, and I didn't want it to be geeky with loads of tech talk and jargon. To put people off and we wanted to show people who just said i want to buy a bit of bitcoin because i want in on this we wanted to show people that's our level really to show people how to do that yeah it sounds it sounds perfect because everything that i've watched or listened to or like been i've had like white papers referred to me and stuff and i just think this isn't <laughs> i'm not going to be investing my next week into this so your podcast actually sounds kind of perfect for me and probably a mm. fair few people out there to be honest um so just out of curiosity what podcast what podcast inspired you to to start podcasting back then <laughs> um i don't think i was inspired by a podcast i think i probably started listening to podcasts so um so I, I've, they've been on my radar for a while um probably in terms of self-publishing i listened to the self-publishing podcast which is where i first heard about you guys that's probably the first podcast and joanna pens i listened to which i think we all listen to just trying to think what else is on my on my phone i think it was just it kind of gets you you were saying it's like a drug isn't it you know you, yeah. you start to listen to one and then you hear them referring to other podcasts i i have, I have loads of podcasts now i started listening to the the funny one that the guys do what's uh, what's it called um, worst show ever worst show ever yeah i started listening to that and enjoyed that i'm just looking at what's on my and then i think i found probably sell more book show um and then you know, and then that's probably the point at which I started mine. So I, uh, and then I started about the same time that Mark Dawson did. But I, I think at that stage of, you know, I think those podcasts, because those writers are so far advanced, you should always be looking into the distance and saying, this is what I want. This is what I want to achieve in the future. But I just felt that some of the guests were just completely removed from where I was yeah. in my career, ma making nothing. And mm. I just felt there's a gap here to get, to get writers who've started. They've, They've got over that biggest hurdle, which is writing the first book, and they've started to make some sales in a small way. So they have tips to pass on, but they're not so far in the distance that we just feel like we can't achieve it. And again, the, you know, the two most common bits of feedback I get on my podcast are precisely that. It's great to hear of authors just like me. And, and also, I think that's why people like the diary, because you hear it warts and all. You don't, you don't just hear, you know, that's another 10 million in this week. You know, and I, I wrote a 10,000 word book. You know, it's because it sometimes feels that way when you're struggling. Um, I sort of share the successes and the failures and, and the angst. And people seem to like that for some yeah. reason. Yeah. So you obviously have a lot of outputs going on. You've got your podcast, you've got your writing, you've got 
um, all the other bits that you do. I think we briefly touched on this as well when I, I was on your podcast a couple of months ago where we were talking about how we balance the creative inputs, so the, the books you read, the podcasts you listen to. Do you have a set sort of schedule in terms of how you digest creative input, if that makes sense? I try to, um, yeah, I, I listen to a lot more Audible. I've got loads of Audible books, um, and I've got a load of podcasts to consume, and I read, I have read far too much nonfiction, so I've got a shelf there lined with, with nonfiction books. Um, you know, personal development. I hear you guys talk about this all the time. I think, yeah, mm. that's on my shelf. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Uh, as you do, because when you when you enter this rabbit hole of podcasts, you constantly hear people that you like to listen to referring to books, and I just go straight on to Audible. But I have a hundred pound. What is the Audible thing? Twenty four books. I just put twenty four books on at a time now. And every time I hear people like you saying about a book, I think, right, well, that's interesting. Buy it. I just add it add it to the list now um i i listen to podcasts constantly i think people i, I have a i work three days a week um and i listen constantly when i walk to work when i walk back from work i exercise in the mornings i listen when i'm exercising so i, I try to i always remember when I, I used to work at a restaurant as a teenager and the chef told me that it, when you work in kitchens he said never walk from one end of the kitchen to the other without having something in your hand and yeah. um and, and I apply the same rule with podcasts. So if I'm doing something where I could be listening, um, you know, something that doesn't require my full concentration, then I have a podcast on. Mm. Yeah. Do you ever get like, because uh, I'm the same, I kind of listen, to, I do think I maybe listen to too much because there are times when I get home from work or something and my brain just feels completely, just there's too much inf info. <laughs> I just can't mm. process it. I need to sort of meditate or zone out or something. Do you ever get to that yeah, point? Yeah, yeah. I have quite a high capacity for it, to be honest with you. So, uh, yeah, I'm 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 fine with it. I, I find it's funny. My wife won't entertain the idea of podcasts. I keep saying, "Oh, listen to this, give this a try," and and is it auditory? Doesn't switch her on at all. She just can't get it. She said, "I can't yeah. retain it." But I'm I'm there, sitting there, and I think, "Oh, tip book," and, and I'm making a little note, <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, I'm constantly picking things. This is always my view of training. You know, when you go to a training day. Maybe if you walk away with five great things that you can use, that's been a, a day well spent to me. So I'm just constantly picking bits off and thinking. And things also, I like things that make me think or challenge the way that I'm thinking, that yeah. make me think, hang on, what are you doing that for, Paul? You know, you're crazy. Do, do it this way. I'll try this. So I, I, I constantly like that input. But, yeah, it doesn't really trouble me, to be honest with you. I, can I think my problem with it is is that um, I'm not reading enough fiction, and I need to read more fiction. So I'm proactively trying to read fiction. Well, uh, we've got the, uh, the old book club there now, the Hawk and Cleaver book club, if you fancy uh, joining in. I think we're choosing the next book soon. Nice very... bug. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a really temperamental reader, actually. You know, I have to, um, I, if you told me to read a book, for, I couldn't join a book club because if you told me to read a book that I wasn't interested in, I wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. I have to read based on interest. So if I see something on, on in WH Smith and I think, wow, great cover, I'll just buy it and read it. That's, that's how I read. I have to be inspired by the book yeah mm. see i used to be like that but i've started to try and expand the horizons a little and just go for a couple of recommendations and it's it's working out well so far i've had one or two books where i've been a bit like Meh. you know what the rule but, is though don't you it's uh you give a book a hundred pages minus your age so then later on in life you can give it like 10 pages and you think oh fuck, i'm not you don't have to read anymore but earlier on <laughs> you should you know give something at least you know, I don't know 75 pages before you give up on it mm. Well, you see, I did English literature as a um, as my degree. I was a Bachelor of Education in English Literature, so it was whatever it was. It was a lot of my degree. And um, 
I had to read books to order. So when, you, when you've done yeah. A-level and a degree and you've had to read classics that you don't particularly want to read, you know, I can remember carving up little Dorrit um, into reading it over eight nights and it was a hundred and something pages a night re reading to order. I didn't read for a long time after I finished my degree because I just couldn't face books. And then yeah. I had to reteach myself exactly what you've said that I can drop if I don't enjoy a book, I don't have to read it. I had to reteach myself that. Um, and and so then, then I got my love of reading back again. But the, the ironic thing about doing English literature is it killed my love of reading because I had to read to order at that yeah. point. Do you remember mm. what book it was, you know, when you sort of got back into it that maybe lit the flames again? Yeah, it's always been thrillers that have done it. So yeah. uh, when, when I was um, when I was a teenager, when I was a teenager, I was about 15. I was messing around in a library session at school like you do. And I got told off by the teacher to you know, find a book and sit down. And I just grabbed a book, which was a James Hadley Chase book. And James Hadley Chase is a sort of thriller uh, gangster writer. I don't know when he wrote 60s, 50s, 60s, something like that. He wrote loads of books. He's like a, an Edith Blyton for adults uh, in that he just you know, bangs them out and they're all formulaic. But I, I read this book. It was called There's a Hippie on the Highway. And, you know, you know, when you're there, you'd be told off and you think, oh, I better get my head down and do it. So I started reading this book and it was James Hadley Chase. And I loved it. And I read I mean, he's got loads of books. And um, and I just started buying them as a teenager and reading them, and and that got me into to, to reading thrillers. That got me into thrillers, and that's that actually was what got me into writing again as a teenager because I wanted to emulate the way that James Hadley Chase was writing that really fast get on with it style, you know, constantly twisting and turning stories, um, not not boring at all. And so when I got back to reading, I came back into um, uh, thrillers again. It's thrillers. It's Harlan Coben, I think, you know, really got me going again. Um, and that's why I write thrillers, because if I'm ever stuck on a, for a book, I just read a, a thriller that I love the cover on, and I'm off. So that's James Hadley Chase, you say, and who was the, the newer one that you, you mentioned? Um, Harlan Coben, Lidwood Barclay, I love. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're, they're the kind of guys that I'm trying to, and, and more recently, a guy called Mark Edwards, um, who I'm trying to... I'm oh, trying to well. oh, yeah, yeah. my um, my mum started reading him, just so everyone knows. Huh. <laughs> yeah, literally brought up his um, brought up his name today, but he he seems to be quite popular at the minute. He he writes kind of um, psychological thrillers, yeah, that are based around relationships and things, which is what I like to write about. You know, couples where relationships are going sour and that kind of thing, and I, and I, I love that sort of thing. And um, Harlan Coben and Linwood Barclay, effectively, uh, Mark. I've interviewed Mark, and he put it really well. It's on my board under. He, he he's his books are scary things happen to ordinary people. That's how he describes his books, <laughs> and um and I've got that on my board because that's what my thrillers are about. And I want to be like Mark Edwards when I grow up. That's where I'm going with it. Yeah. So how is it? Because you so you have three different pen names as we kind of established at the beginning. Obviously, there are a lot of authors out there that have that debate with themselves whether or not to stick all of their work under one banner, whether to diversify and look at having multiple pen names in slightly different genres. What was the decision to not only pick sort of two, one for your fiction and one for your nonfiction, but to then go for a further separate pen name to separate your sci-fi from your thrillers? What was the sort of thinking behind that? Uh, entirely search engine thinking that um, we, we don't want to muddle the search results. So I'm an unknown author. Uh, uh, you know, no one, no one knows me. Um, so um, your your aspiration really as a fiction author is to become a keyword. So Stephen King is a keyword now. Um, people search for Stephen King. They don't search for they'll search for horror, which is the genre. But Stephen King now is a keyword. And as authors, 
we want to become our own keyword. So I want people to search for Paul Teak. That's really what I want. But that isn't going to happen for some time, not until I shift a lot of books. So uh, I decided to separate it off by genre so I could market clearly by genre and not sort of muddy the pools, if you want. I, and, and also it, it, um, it messes up your also buys. So if somebody uh, buys one of my sci-fis, if they were all under Paul Teague, for instance, somebody buys a Facebook book of mine and they start to see thrillers in, in, in the also buys and things, it just gets completely confusing. So I, I think of it from a completely logical search engine point of view, and then I want to keep it very clean. But if you put Paul Teague in, it'll bring all my books up still. If you put it into a search engine, it'll bring all the books up still. Yeah. So, um, and recently, I know you had some great success with BookBub. We, uh, <laughs> we haven't, we, I've been applying for about two, two, three years now, I think, uh, with no success. Um, I was just wondering if you could maybe detail, you know, what book you had the success with and maybe tell us how you did it. <laughs> it was a complete surprise to me. So like you, I've been doing the BookBub thing for ages and I, I've done it with my sci-fi. I'd really love my grid trilogy to go in because it gets the grid one get, just gets uh, just constantly good reviews in the States and the UK. And um, it's, sometimes you hit a book that just is fine. People don't bitch about anything in it. It's just it just <laughs> seems to work, you know, and, uh, and the grid one seems to be that book for me. And, um, and those are the books I'd like to have got in, but they keep turning them down. And I tried my thrillers, my Don't Tell Meg trilogy, um, and funny thing about those thrillers is, is that because I'm writing so fast now, I can't afford to keep up with the covers. I can't do a proofread and pay 300 quid, 400 quid for a cover as I was doing with the books. I just can't keep up with myself because I'm, I'm banging them out so fast now. So I, I, I had to make cut some corners on the cover with those books. And I, I kind of got a basic cover made on Fiverr. And then I know it. I always get what are called the layers done on Photoshop. So I know enough about Photoshop. If somebody does me a nice design, I can manipulate the layers to, to make a design. I can't just do the original design in the first place. And, and they've all got like sort of Fiverr-based covers. And I thought, well, you know, they won't do it, but I'll try. And they accepted it with, you know, what frankly is a mediocre cover on it. Um, though nobody said that. People seem to like the cover, but I think it's really mediocre. Um, you can, it's it's you know the covers that you get. Um, the real cheap, horrible covers that you get when you do a, a, a Kindle book, it, when it's do-it-yourself within Kindle, and they're all that purpley brown thing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like one step up from that, in my opinion, in terms of you know GCSE art um, standard. Um, and so I didn't think it would get accepted. And when it did, I had to read the email a couple of times to make sure it wasn't there weren't any provisos on it. They just accepted it. Now, at the time, I think it had fewer than. 20 reviews on it so it only had you know the usual i'm a struggling writer kind of number of reviews those reviews were okay there were four to five um re reviews it had that poor cover on it and they accepted it uh this was oct uh, in october so i do I, although um I, you know I, do, I know enough about marketing to know the tricks so i thought i'm not going to get another chance at this again so i need to maximize this so this is why I love being in Vellum and in Scrivener, because I went in and I, I very, very clearly cross-promoted all my other books, you know, the front and back matter and everything like that, and maximized that. I put my I put books two and three, and I also have box sets. I put them on countdown deals so that when all that massive traffic hit on the um book bub, it would make it attractive for people to very quickly buy on the series. So I did every trick I could think of 
basically every single trick I could think of and then just waited for it. I honestly didn't expect to even cover my costs with it. Um, so I can't remember what it was, $350, something like that. Yeah. And I do have a ninja trick, actually, if you ever get a book promo. So um, the other thing I did, I'd, I'd learned this. I'd had my best month um, in May 2017, which I'd achieved with a free booksy promo. And it was only um, $1,000, I think, but that was my best month to date, that one. And um, I'd learned then, I'd done the free booksy, and then I'd followed it up with a couple of sort of cheaper, smaller promos the day after. And I did this with the, the book bub as well. And what I found with that is, is that often the, the main promo will get you up to a certain point in the free listings. But when you come the day after with a follow-up, I call it sort of the one-two punch sort of thing, or jab is it, whatever they call it in, in boxing. It's one-two. It's a one-two approach. You, you follow it up, and it often pushes you up. So with the book bub, I, I had book bub on the whatever it was, the Thursday, and then I followed it up with a free booksy and something else. And it meant that in the free, I got number one in the thrillers. There was all over the world, number one, um, USA, uh, UK. I was number seven in Japan with Joseph Conrad and Dan Brown. Uh, which wow. you believe just, just amazing game. Don't, I think it might have been a cheaty Dan Brown. I think the Joseph Conrad was for real, but um, it was a sample of Dan Brown. But it, it looked it looked legitimate. But it, um, I, I interviewed a guest who was who lives in Japan, and he said, "Yeah, the Japan sort of Amazon charts are crazy." So that that figures that you would do that. And who was it? Ryder Ryder Haggard is it who wrote She? Ryder somebody. Uh, he was number one in the J Japanese charts. Uh, so. Um, it was bizarre, uh, but it was number one all over the place. You know, in the free charts, mm. and it and it and it gave me uh, my sort of best earnings in a month, which I'm just about to get paid it. So it's going to be, and I'm not quite sure what the final tally will be, but it'll be over four uh, four thousand pounds in a month of income, uh, in that month, <laughs> um, which is quite amazing, isn't it? So mm, um, yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I mean, so we should get Fiverr covers. <laughs> <laughs> something along those lines i think it is a, a bit of a, a game of chance but at the same time you know you did all the hard work uh in terms of getting the cross promotion and doing the one two punch and everything and you were there to sort of meet that traffic and i think that that has really paid off in a really lovely way yeah i, I mean i no one's more surprised at that than me I mean, i'm highly delighted by it because i've been doing this for three years about time we had something decent coming in for good sake for god's sake but um uh the, the other thing that's been surprising to me is is the long tail on that and I, i've sort of i've gone through this in great detail revealing everything on my podcast diaries and what i said to people is you know one book bub does not an author career make and i know that this is going to tail off i know it's going to tail off so so i wonder how long the tail off is and the funny thing is is so what so october um october i had enough traffic i think that gave me a thousand pound month in october because i did so much traffic um the promo was 30th and 31st of um october so i think that gave me a thousand pound month and then i had a four thousand month in november i still had an over it's about 1250 i think in december and then i was on target to have a thousand pound month in january but i've just done another promo in the last few days uh, not book bub it because i can't do another book bub for six months so i, I i've done a free boxing so i've i want to but my sort of chart position of my organic sales have increased uh, tremendously as a result of that now you know um i've got to wait till april for the next book bub and in actual fact i've commissioned mark dawson's cover designer whose name escapes me now ian beish beish i, I don't know if they, but I, i've Stuart always thought mark mark's covers were fantastic I, I really like the soho noir ones he does and 
Uh, yeah, really lovely cover designer. So well, I, I thought, I wonder how much he costs. And, uh, because I'd like, so the evidence is that that book sells. The evidence is that people read through that book. So when they read book one, when they get it for free, a lot of them, you know, enough of them for me to make some money from read book two and three. So my feeling was, so, you know, what can we tweak and improve here then in that? And, and to me, it's the covers. Now, what I'm really feel, so I've got Stuart Bache on standby to do me some covers in April, which is the first time he's available. I get them cheaper because it's in a series. So I'm going to have to, I'm going to pay, it's going to cost me 9000 Sorry, not nine thousand nine hundred and sixty pounds. I think it is for three covers, which is a bit of a winter, isn't it? But, but my view is, is when you've got the sort of the evidence, I've got the test evidence that that book converts, that people buy it, and then um, I know this from my internet marketing days. When you have an offer that converts, you just need to throw the traffic at it. It's like it becomes like a money machine. What we're after with our books is a money machine. So you know, I pay three hundred dollars to promote this book, and I know I'm going to make two thousand back. So I can pay two hundred dollars as many times as I want. I know I'm always going to get $2,000 back. It's a money machine at that point. And, and that's what you're trying to get to with your books. So you know that they convert and it's then worth putting money into them because you know you're always going to get your money back. So I'm, I am going to try the covers. What I'm fearful of is that I start promoting it and they like the original crappy fiber covers <laughs> and that they convert better. I've spent 900 whatever it is on covers so they don't do the job. But I just want them to look, I want them to look beautiful. I want them, Stuart Bates' instructions are going to be, make that look like something that could be on Richard and Judy. That's that's what I want yeah. it to look like. And the thing is, as a person who consumes the stuff that you create, you will be the best judge of the covers that you believe will sell. So it's not like you're kind of just throwing anything out there just to double check and try and potentially ruin a winning formula you've you've got that evidence in yourself or at least we we all hope um that that should hopefully lead to a success for you yeah i mean you know who, who knows this is the thing i i know when i was an internet marketer we used to sell um you know thousands of products and what we would do is what are called joint ventures where you'd get people with big email lists huge email lists i mean with thousands and thousands of people on so you'd throw loads of traffic at, a, at an offer and we would spend ages until i was pulling my hair out trying to get the sales pages to, to know that they could convert so we'd send early traffic to them and we would try and get it up i think an average conversion on a page is about one percent and we would work and work and work to get to say four and a half percent the biggest thing i ever did we got from 1% to 4.5% because that's four and a half times the money you would make for the same traffic. That's mm. that's what you're trying to get to. Now, in, in book terms, the things that convert are the blurb, uh, the reviews, and the covers. Those are the things that we could... And then, obviously, when they get inside, the book. Do they like the book enough to buy books two and three in a series? So there's only you know there's certain things that convert, but the first things probably are the cover and the blurb are the first things that make a book convert. Say, I don't fancy that, or I fancy that. And then you maybe look a little bit deeper uh, into the reviews, see whether everybody agrees it looks as good as it seems. And then after that, it's <laughs> whether it's the book's rubbish or not, That that's kind of yeah. up to you then as a writer. So I'm just looking at, you know, to me, this is just the same as internet marketing. One of those lessons I learned in that is that when you've got something that converts, you need to be able to throw as much traffic at it as you can. And then you also need to try and um, tweak it to make it convert better. Because if I can make that book convert twice as well i'm gonna make twice as much money on it next time i do a book pub so we have to sort of squeeze all those items uh in our sales funnel yeah yeah it sounds good it's um it sounds like science it sounds like exactly what i would expect paul uh to come up with <laughs> we'll be able to do it on the blockchain in a couple of years guys yeah. so uh i think i've only got one more question before we go into the quick fire round but dan is there anything else that you um wanted to ask 
No, off the top of my head, I think we'll 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 hammer through with this final question because I always like I always like this one. Okay, cool. Uh, so, Paul, uh, if all your work got lost to the great crypto wars of 2020, and you lost all but one of your books, which book would that be, and why? Mm, interesting. It would have to be. I think the one I like best is my Don't Tell Meg trilogy. I'm really proud of it. It's got it's based on a radio journalist, so it's got a lot of the things I learned in the BBC in there, just little, you know, things the way that radio works and journalism works. So it'd have to be Don't Tell Meg, I think, that trilogy. Cool, cool. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, okay, so quick fire round. Are you ready? Yeah, go on. Okay, Dan, you want to go first or would you like me to? Uh, after you, sir. Number one, second to last book you read. <laughs> oh, uh, couple next door. It's a thriller. What's your favorite currency? <laughs> Cryptocurrencies. Favorite alcoholic beverage? Uh, John Smith's beer. Ooh. Favorite UK city? Uh, London is most exciting. Uh, first film you ever loved? Bingy, which you won't even know about. It's really embarrassing. <laughs> it's about a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the one person you'd like to meet? Um, oh, crikey. Uh, who would I like to meet? I would like to meet my old school friend, Owen Walker, because I haven't seen him for years and don't know where he's gone and he's not on social media. Do you believe in God? No. <laughs> uh, your favourite creator who's not a writer? Runrig, Scottish band. Love them. Uh, what film makes you cry? Um... Film makes me cry. Crikey. Um, what else made me cry? Um, Wild, the one with Reese Witherspoon in. Let's say that. That's quite. Mm. Where can we follow you and your work? Uh, at paulteague.net is probably the best place to go. I think that's the right one. I've got a few places. Selfpublishingjourneys.com, cryptonewspodcast.com, and paulteague.net. That'll give you access to everything that we've talked about today. Cool, cool. Well, thanks, uh, thanks so much, Paul. Um, Thank you very really much. It's really lovely to speak to you. I know you and Dan um, are going to be spending some time. That sounds really <laughs> dodgy this weekend. <laughs> you two are going to be in the same location next uh, this coming weekend, right? Yeah, we're yeah. sharing a hotel together, apparently. <laughs> yes. <laughs> are you eloping in Gretna Green? Where, where are you going? I'm not quite sure where our rooms are in relation to each other, but yeah, off down to, to London for, we can say it, can't we? The 20 books to uh, yeah. UK London conference. Very much looking forward to that and seeing some. Uh, some faces of people we've spoken to, some people we haven't yet met, um, raising the glass and just learning learning some cool stuff. Oh, cool. So just a quick thanks to Disaster Peace for the intro and outro music, Acast for hosting the podcast, the listeners for listening, our patrons over at patreon.com forward slash hawk and cleaver. Uh, thanks, Dan, for being my co-host and being here. Thank you, because without you, I'd be alone. Cheers, Dan. Thank you, Luke. And once again, thanks, Paul. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. It's been great being here. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Story Studio Podcast. Still hungering for some podcast goodness? Then why not check out our other show, The Other Stories? Oh, and did you know, every time you leave us a review in the iTunes store, a puppy is born. Cute, eh? Anyway, toodle pip.